0: Uh, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that as we look at your word today, your Holy Spirit would uh, illuminate our hearts and minds. We we pray that you grant us understanding. Um, Lord, we know that your word is spiritually discerned, uh, spiritually appreciated. and We need your Holy Spirit to, to do his work in our hearts today. Uh, we give you, uh, even now, all the glory and honor for all that we're going to to learn in all that you're going to accomplish in our hearts today. We ask, Lord, that the result of our time today, our worship, our prayer, our meditation of your word, would ultimately redound to your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning I want to continue our meditation, our study of the scriptures themselves. We're going to look at the word about the word. Um, And this morning what I want to do is kind of do an overview of some of the metaphors of the scripture that we find in the Bible. So what is the metaphor? Get it? Metaphor? Okay, That was a bad joke, I'm sorry. I'll I'll come up with some better ones. Um, Essentially a metaphor is comparing the unknown to the known, or taking something familiar, and then uh, from that familiar thing we learn something about that which is less familiar. And in Scripture, we often get a physical uh, thing to tell us about a spiritual thing. We get a visible thing to tell us about an invisible thing. So the familiar el- el- elucidates, if you will, the the unfamiliar. And there's a correspondence between the re- a certain aspect of the metaphor and a certain aspect of the thing that it's uh, representing. Um, now, with any other figure of speech in the Bible, you you can take these things and you can go way off on tangents and get into weird, you know, weird doctrines. Generally speaking, a metaphor like a parable has one or two basic meanings, um, and so you don't want to take these things and go crazy with them. But In many cases, the the meaning of the metaphor is fairly plain, if you will, from uh, its context. So we're going to look at a few of these today. Um, The first one I want to mention is the metaphor of the word being like seed. This is one of the most common ones that we're most familiar with, and we find it in the parable of the sower and the yeah, which is in three of the Gospels. Okay. The sower goes out and he sows the seed on four different kinds of grounds. Well, the seed, Jesus says, the seed is the word of God. Not literally, of course, figuratively, right? So the seed is the word of God, or should we say, the word of God is like seed. Go to 1 Peter, we're going to jump around today, I apologize. Uh, 1 Peter, Peter also uses this metaphor of the seed, he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, my version says, Through the Spirit, in sincere love for the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, Now the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, its flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached unto you. So uh, Peter here refers to the word as being incorruptible, as being eternal, abiding. My version says abiding forever. And that through the word, this excuse me, through the seed, we've been born again. James in chapter 1 says the same thing. We're not going to turn there. But James in uh, 118 says that we have been born again by the word of God. So the sower goes out and he sows the seed. It falls into the good ground. And as a result of that, the word then brings life. It brings life, right? Jesus said that a seed, in John 12, a seed has to fall into the ground and die to bear fruit. What's interesting, though, this seed doesn't die. Peter says this seed is incorruptible. So a seed, in order to produce a tree and and then its fruit or whatever, has to go on the ground and the seed disintegrates and the seed dies. But the word of of God doesn't do that. It, It produces life, but it itself... Continues because being God's word, it's an eternal word. It lives and it abides forever. So the primary meaning of the seed is the seed is that which gives life and gives new life, which is why it's associated in scripture, of course, along with the spirit with the new birth, the new birth. But it also just suggests the idea of growth. So n- not just life, but then growth of that life, if you will. In, uh, in the parable of the sower, the good ground is the ground that, of course, that receives the word, keeps it, but then it, it produces, right? It produces much fruit. So the seed received causes new life, but the new life flourishes, and that new life grows, and it produces a crop. It's really astounding when you think about it that you can take a seed, one little seed, and then you put it in the ground, and it can produce, produce just say, say an apple tree, produces the tree, and it produces hundreds and hundreds of apples, right? And one little seed. And that's the way the Word of God is in our life. Once the seed's implanted in our soul, and the Holy Spirit causes it to come to life, if you will, in us, we're born again, and th- that seed then grows and produces all sorts of fruits the fruits of the Spirit, the fruits of service, you know, all of the things that God produces in our life from that little bitty seed, if you will, of the Word of God. Second metaphor, and by the way, some of these metaphors I'm going to come back to in the future and talk more in depth about them, but we're, going to, we're just doing a review. Another metaphor is the, the Scripture or the, the, the Word is compared to food. To food, right? Two kinds of food are mentioned. Do you know what they are? Yeah. Or two, two, two categories of food. Does anybody want to tell me what they are? I can't hear you. Well, yeah, but I was thinking of categories, but you're right. Drink, drink, and then solid food, right? Liquid food. And then solid food. The liquid in Scripture is the milk, right? Talks about the milk of the word. And then the solid food is referred to as, as some places bread, some places meat, right? What are, the two, what are the three staples of life, right? Milk, bread, and meat, pretty much. These, these are the basics, right? The basic diet. Um, Jesus, well, we'll go there. Go to Matthew 4. Like I said, we're going to jump around. Sorry. You guys have your smartphones, and you can get there faster than me because you're so smart. You try. So, in Matthew 4, Jesus is being attacked by the devil. It um, says in verse 3 of chapter 4, Now, when the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Of course, this is after 40 days and 40 nights of not eating, right? This is a temptation. <laughs> but he, Jesus' answered, said, it is written, it is written in Deuteronomy 8.3, he's quoting the Old Testament, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So he's contrasting it to bread, but he, what he's really saying is, man does not live by physical bread alone, but rather by a spiritual bread or a spiritual food. Um, in 1 Corinthians, Paul refers to the, the, um, the word as milk. Now in that context, he's kind of reproving them because he's saying, you know, by this point, you ought to be adult enough spiritually to handle the meat of the word, but you're not, so I have to keep on giving you milk. But in both cases, the milk, the, the food, the meat, the bread, what do they do? They nourish, right? They nourish the body. So likewise, the word of God nourishes the soul. Guess what happens if you don't eat? Well, first you might lose some weight and look better, but then, <laughs> that's what I need to do. But, but then, if you, if you keep on not eating, What's going to happen? You will die. Not maybe you'll die. It's not as if some of us can fast for a thousand days. No, you will die. It is absolutely certain. What does that tell us? That tells us that food is absolutely necessary for the body's life. Food is absolutely necessary for nourishment to the body. And then what is the point of the metaphor? That the the word is absolutely necessary for the nourishment of the soul. Absolutely. There's no class of super-Christian who can ignore the Bible and just say, because I'm in tune with God, And because I have the Holy Spirit in my own little group of revelations, therefore, I don't need the Bible. We all need the Bible because the Bible feeds the soul. Now, I'm not a doctor, you know. I'm not a science guy. But, you know, as I was meditating on the Word and I was thinking about this, you know, food, food is a funny thing. Are you all getting hungry for lunch already? We're talking about food. But when you think about it, there's a correspondence between what you eat and what your body needs. Now, that's if you're eating normal food. If you're eating a big box of donuts, there may not be a correspondence at all. Okay. But when you're taking milk and bread and meat and your vegetables, there's a correspondence. There's, there's something in, the, in what you're ingesting which your body needs. Okay? So you're thinking, well, of course, that's why we eat. No, we eat because we're hungry. the the reason The reason I'm laboring the obvious is because because what we forget is that in the spiritual realm, there's a correspondence between the scripture and what the soul needs. Okay, there's a correspondence between truth. And the regenerated soul, which is similar to the correspondence between food and the physical body. In a way that I can't say they understand, but the regenerated soul, heart, mind, feeds on the scripture, feeds on truth in a similar way that the body feeds on the food that it takes in. And just like the the, the metaphor of the seed implies growth, so we know that the, the milk of the word, the meat of the word, the bread of the word, the food of the word is absolutely essential to the growth and the health of the Christian. Healthy Christians are in the word. It's really that simple. Um... I've done a lot of counseling over the years. And almost when someone comes to me about a problem, whether it's a personal problem, a marital problem, whatever, one of the first things I ask them is tell me about your time in the Word and prayer. And and very often, people that are not doing well will say they're not doing well in the Word. Well, it doesn't surprise me. If you're not eating... Guess what? You're going to lose strength, right? If you ever fasted for any length of time, you know what I mean. You fast and you start to feel weak, right? If you're not in the Word, you will be spiritually weak. It's inevitable. There's no mystery to this part of the metaphor. All right. So the lesson of the, of the of the, the one of the lessons of the metaphor of the the food of the Word is not only that it nourishes us, but by implication, or Really, by assumption, it's absolutely necessary to our growth. Third metaphor, water. This is in Ephesians 5, if you want to turn there. In Ephesians 5, Paul's, in in the context, he's talking about a husband-wife relationship. But then he talks about Christ and the church. And he says in verse 25 of chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, so that he might sanctify and cleanse her, how? With the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Um, There's also reference to washing in Titus chapter 3. In that place, it, it, he refers to the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So the word, what, what does water do? Well, it quenches your thirst, right? But here, clearly, the, the point of the metaphor is that water cleanses us. Okay? We use it to wash and to cleanse ourselves. So what the word does, when it's implanted in the heart, as we meditate on it and as we we learn it, we, we then walk in it, it, it cleanses our thoughts, it cleanses our life. Keeps us clean, if you will. It is an agent of our sanctification and our holiness. In Psalm 119, the psalmist says this, and, and, and this is the, the Psalm 119 is the hymn to the word, really. Psalm 119, he's, it reads this way. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. How can a young man, verse 9, cleanse his way? Cleanse his way by taking heed according to your word. So the word of God has a cleansing effect. And what I like about this, this text is that it's, it's, it's not so much us cleansing ourselves to the word, but he says Jesus cleanses us. So as we read and meditate and study the word, we're, we're, we're interacting with the Lord Jesus and the Jesus, Jesus then uses the word to cleanse us of error, cleanse us of, of evil thoughts, cleanse us of evil intentions as he's renewing and sanctifying our soul. Amen? Another metaphor, uh, there's actually a group of metaphors in Jeremiah 23. Let's turn there. There's three of them grouped together in Jeremiah 23. Yeah, Jeremiah 23. Now, the, the context of 23, if you haven't read it lately, is that Jeremiah is, really the Lord through Jeremiah, is reproving the false prophets. The false prophets were, were coming to Israel. They were saying, peace, peace, when there's no peace. They were prophesying out of their own hearts, if you will, their own visions, their own dreams, which were contrary to God's word. They were saying, thus saith the Lord. In other words, they were saying, I'm delivering you the word of the Lord, which in fact was contrary to the word of the Lord. Okay, that's a false prophet, false teacher, right? So... Um, So Jeremiah is reproving them, where the Lord is through through him, and he says this in verse, we'll start in 23. 23, 23. Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places, so I shall not see him? What's the answer? No. Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? Answer, yes. I have heard, in other words, he's saying, hey, guys, I'm everywhere, by the way. You're not getting away with anything. I'm well aware of what's happening here. Okay? Um, so I've heard, he says in 25, I've heard what the prophets have said, who prophesied lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long will this be in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies? Indeed, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart, who try to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which everyone tells his neighbor, as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. 28. The prophet who has a dream, let him tell a dream. And he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, says the Lord? Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? God's saying, um, I'm, number one, I'm well aware of the, the, all the false teaching happening, and number two, uh, if if prophet wants to tell his dream, fine, let him tell his dream. But let, let my, my true prophets speak my word, because what is the, what is the chapter of the wheat? God's not afraid, if you will, his, his word is more than able. Matter of fact, he says his word is able because it is a fire and it is a hammer, if you will, to destroy the false teaching of the false prophets. So here the Lord says his word is a fire. And what does a fire do? Well, you know, one, you could say, well, fire warms, right? In another sense, you can say a fire cleanses because the scripture talks about the refining fire, right? How the, the, the fire burns the gold and the dross comes to the surface and it's scraped off so you have pure gold. So you can say the, the, word, as the word cleanses, if you will, through, through a burning or a purging process. But clearly in this context, the main, the main point of the fire and the hammer is that they destroy. This is interesting because this is, this is where we see a, a, a negative or a destructive use of the word. You get know what I'm saying? Seeds aren't destructive, they produce life. Water's not destructive. Well, I guess a flood is, but food's not destructive unless you eat like me. Uh, but these are destructive, these are weapons, if you will, that were used in warfare to destroy. And in the context, that's what God is saying. He says, my word is such that it is able to destroy falsehood, to destroy lies, to expose error, to, to burn up the chaff of the false prophets and the false teaching. So if a prophet has a dream, fine, let him tell a dream. But then let my prophet speak my word. In other words, there's no comparison of the chaff to the wheat. The, 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 the false teaching can't, can't withstand the burning of, of the fire of my word. My hammer is able to, to take down and destroy the strongholds of the false teaching. That's what God is saying. <clears throat> so in that sense, we could say it's destructive, but it actually it's constructive. Because by tearing down air, it, it gives us truth, right? Right? By tearing down the the idols, then we understand the true God. And this leads to another metaphor we see in the word, which is a common one. and That is that the the scripture is compared to a sword. Again, another weapon, a sword. Look at uh, Ephesians 6. Paul is talking about our spiritual warfare. And in 610, he says, Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. And then he goes through the list of the armor. And then the very last uh, weapon he mentions, 17, he says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The sword of the Spirit. Now go to Hebrews 4, where again the, the word is compared to a sword. In Hebrews 4, we'll start in verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter into that rest, lest anyone fall, according to the same example of disobedience, or could be translated unbelief. Now the context is, the, the author of Hebrews is rehearsing some of the history of Israel and how they, God invited them into rest, which was the promised land, right? Right? But as you, as you read the story, what you, what you find is that the first generation ended up wandering in the wilderness, and they never made it into the promised land. They, they never got into the land of rest. And so the question was, why? Well, as, he, as, he, as you read through chapter 3, what you see is that they hardened their heart to the word of God. Notice verse chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works 40 years, therefore I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways, so I swore in my anger they shall not enter my rest. Brethren, therefore, uh, lest there be, uh, beware, lest there be any, in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God the unbelief being manifested in the fact they were not willing to hear his voice. They were not willing to listen to his word. Okay, his word. God spoke something to them and they said, no, we don't believe you. It was really that simple. So he says they went stray in their heart because of the unbelief in their heart. Therefore, they did not enter into the promised land. The problem was not that the enemies were in the land. The problem was not uh, anything to do with their inability to fight and conquer the land. The problem was the sin of unbelief in God's word. I need an amen. That was the problem. And that led to 40 years of wilderness walking. 40 years. And the exhortation here is is brethren, you, Christians, us, professing believers, don't fall into the same mistake. Meaning as Christians, if we're walking in unbelief, we can spend our lives wandering. We can never, it's possible as a Christian to waste your life in the wilderness, to always be defeated, to never enter the rest, never enter the promised land, never enter enter the the fullness of, of the gospel that God has for his people. If that were not possible, there'd be no point to this very long and extended warning. So he says in 4.11, Therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest we fall, lest anyone fall, according to the same example of disobedience. Now, this word disobedience is used several times in this text, and it can be translated fairly either way, unbelief or disobedience. The word is translated both ways in Scripture, and, and so you can pick which one you want. But unbelief is disobedience. And in this context, the sin he's talking about is the sin of unbelief. That's the sin that kept them out of the promised land. They didn't believe. God spoke. They didn't believe. So he's warning us, don't fall by the same example. Then he says in verse 12, For the word of God is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from God's sight or his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now what's interesting about this text compared to the text in Ephesians is that is that they both refer to a sword, right? And there are other scriptures. Uh, it talks about Jesus having a, a 2 edged sword coming out of his mouth when he judges in the book of Revelation. So but we, so what we see is that the sword has different uses. In Ephesians, it's, it's, you could say it's, a, it's a, a use in terms of spiritual warfare. You're using the word, you know, like, like Jesus did in the wilderness, right? When he got tempted. He says, it is written. He stood in the word. He believed the word. He used the word to oppose the devil right? So it has, it has this use, we, we could say in a way that's an external use. But here, the sword is a sword that is being used internally. Not, not to fight an enemy. The enemies weren't in the wilderness. When Israel was in the wilderness, where was the enemy? In their heart. It wasn't the giants in the land that was the problem. The problem was the unbelief of their heart. That was the problem. So he says this two-edged sword, and I love that it's called a two-edged sword, because I think of one edge, you know, going after the enemy, but the other, the other edge being used for surgery, right? So the word here, the use of the metaphor here is that the word is, is, is more like a scalpel. That's what we think of it today where the word does surgery on us, if you will, and it exposes, it reveals, it discerns, because it's living what's going on in the heart and the mind, even even down to not just the thoughts, but the intents of the heart. Those hidden motives that even we don't understand. You know, it is not possible for us to know ourselves unless we're in the word of God. Because the Word of God shows us who we really are. Shows us what's really going on. As as David said in the Psalms, in thy light, we will see light. As we are in God's presence, as we're in God's Word, and we meditate and study His Word, we learn not only about God, and about the world, and about others, we learn about ourselves, right? That's where the Word is also... Ready for another metaphor? almost done it's also compared to a mirror right a mirror anybody look in the mirror today if you looked in the mirror today raise your hand we all look in the mirror today isn't that amazing James chapter 1 James exhorting us to, to first hear the word then receive the word verse 21 and then do the word verse 22 But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. So, again, the metaphor of the mirror. What's the point of the mirror? Is the point of the mirror to see somebody else? No. What's the point of the mirror? The point of the mirror is to see how ugly you are. No. <laughs> to see how handsome you are. That's what I say when I look in the mirror. Somebody's got to say it because nobody else will. No, I'm kidding. You look in the mirror to see yourself, right? You don't look in the mirror to see somebody else in the room. You look through the mirror. You look at... You look. You're looking, really, you're looking toward the mirror. What you're really looking at is the image in the mirror. And when you look in the mirror, you see yourself. So James is saying, well, that's what, that's what the internal use of the sword, the sword discerns, the sword, you know, dissects this and that. It says, we look in the word we see, oh my gosh. I am really good looking. It's amazing. <laughs> no, we look in the mirror and say, oh, man. <sighs> I need to, like, clean this mess up. You see what needs to be combed, what needs to be cleaned, what needs to be changed, what needs to be put on, right? So the, the, the mirror instructs you in the things that need to be fixed. And that's what James is saying. You look in the mirror, oh, I need to do this. I see I need to comb my hair. So imagine the morning you get up before work, you look in the mirror and you look like you have that morning look. You know that look? Not good. Say, eh, okay. Okay, whatever. Just walk out and go to work. You're in your pajamas, you didn't comb your hair, you didn't brush your teeth, you didn't wash your face, you didn't shave. You don't do that. You look in the mirror, you clean up the mess. The word shows us. We look in the mirror and we say, oh, I need to do this. I need to put on clothes. I need to brush my teeth. I need to wash my face. I need to shave. And James is saying, it's foolish. You don't look in the mirror and do nothing. You look in the mirror and you respond to the image. and You change, Right? That's what being a doer of the Word is. You look in the Word and say, oh my gosh, the Word tells me to pray. I guess I better really pray. The Word tells me to witness. The Word tells me to read the Word. The Word tells me to love the brethren. The Word tells me to encourage others. The Word tells me to give. The word tells, On and on and on and on. And so as I look in the mirror, then I walk away from the mirror. And then over here, when the mirror's over there, I do. I do what it says. I do what the mirror showed me. James says, if we look in the mirror and walk away and don't do what the mirror shows us, we're just mirror hearers. Mirror hearers. Deceiving ourselves. Because ultimately, the word is for doing, not just knowing. Lastly, and we'll conclude God's word is compared to light or to a lamp. Psalm 119, one of the best-known scriptures. In all of the Bible, really. Psalm 119, 105. The psalmist says this. Y'all there? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And there are many such scriptures like this. In other words, God gives us his word to illuminate us, to give us light, to give us wisdom, to give us knowledge, right? So that we are not uh, bound by error, confusion, deception. And this metaphor of light, I could give a whole sermon on it, and maybe I will in the future, because that one word encapsulates so much that is good. God himself says that he is like light, right? He says God is light. Everything good and positive is bound up in this, this, this metaphor of light, of God showing us the path, showing us where to walk, how to walk, what to think, how to live, Because the opposite of light is what? Darkness. And this, the metaphor of darkness in scripture, is always bad. (laughs) It's always bad. It means error. It means falsehood. It means destruction. It means deception. And other such uh, negative but damaging, damaging things. Let me conclude with this. Um... The word of God is one of the greatest gifts that God has ever given us. I mean, the greatest gift is that the Lord gave his son, right? And then, but his son isn't here. But so what does he do? What, what does God do? He gives me a spirit, which is the spirit of his son. The spirit of Lord Jesus resides in our hearts. Well, so the father, son, and spirit, they give themselves to us. That's the greatest gift. That's Jesus said that's eternal life, to know the Father and the Son. But next to the Lord Himself, the greatest gift is His Word. That's why He says in Psalm 139, you have magnified your word above your name. It's it's one of the mysteries of life. How little most Christians read their Bible when the Bible is so good that it feeds our souls, builds us up, it, it uh, comforts us, it gives us peace and joy and delight. It, it shows us the right path that so we avoid sin and error. And, and, and not just sin in the abstract sense. I'm talking about real sin in your life that causes pain and causes destruction. Let me, let's, uh, well, we don't have time. But as I've said many times over the years, I'll say it again. Um, the word is being like food is something you acquire and a taste for. Now, I'm the kind of eater that if I like something, I'll eat it every day. I'm not adventurous. Some of my kids are like, oh, Dad, try this, try this. I'm like, uh No Thanks. <laughs> steak, potato, basic, you know, okay, basic guy. Not interested. Well, there are probably many things that I could try and would like, and then I would acquire the taste, right? But here's one thing I've learned over the years. The more I read and study and meditate on the Word, the more I want to. And the less I do, the less I want to. I understand, you know, where I have busy lives, you can't spend three hours a day in the Bible. But you need to watch the trend, if you will, in your life. Where are you trending? Because you can lose a taste for the word. You really lose a taste for it. And the, the, the dangerous thing then becomes that you really don't miss it. But well, what's happening though, remember, is because it's, it's food, it's, you're starving yourself spiritually. And you will become, over time, unhealthy. Maybe it won't be clear in a few weeks or even a few months, but you will become unhealthy. And as you become unhealthy, then you become vulnerable to attacks. Then, then you get confused about things and things you thought were right. Well, maybe man, maybe that's not right. I don't know. And you, you can get drawn into error and deception. And it's, it's, it's a process of drifting away. So the Lord tells us in his word, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. Acquire the taste. And as you read the word, you will find that you want the word more. But we need to continue to remind ourselves of of the importance and the benefit and the blessing of the word so that we might not drift away. Let's stand together and pray. Lord, I thank you for the precious gift of your word. That it creates new life, that it causes growth, that it cleanses us, that it it destroys and tears down idols in our hearts, or that it burns up evil desire, Lord, that it is a weapon against evil, and that it lights our path. Lord, we are so grateful that you've given us the light of your word. I pray that we would be a people that hear it, read it, study it, meditate upon it, pray over it, believe it, and obey it. And may we do so, Jesus, ultimately for your glory. Ultimately, Lord, that people might see the change in our life the transformation in our lives through your word, and how we reflect you to them through the ministry of your word in our lives. We pray this, Lord Jesus, for your glory and in your name. And God's people said, amen. Amen.